0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The fossil fuel divestment movement gets a big win as Stanford University decides to purge coal from its endowment. Student campaigners call it great progress.
1: Students have been arrested on the campuses of Harvard and Washington University for this same push. So, you know, in light of that, when you look at it from that kind of a juxtaposition, quite fantastic.
0: Also, how to garden in the time of climate change. And there's a new list of the most pesticide-laden fruits and vegetables, but shoppers in the produce aisle have their own ideas.
2: I think berries would be at the top of the list.
1: I would expect the softer greens. I would expect perhaps spinach.
2: I would guess like bell peppers.
3: I'd guess like maybe root vegetables, like potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, stuff like that.
0: The answer and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI,
0: this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Stanford University will divest its $18 billion endowment of holdings in coal companies, a major victory for the rapidly growing fossil fuel divestment movement. Stanford is the first major university to acknowledge its investments contribute to climate disruption, and it joins 11 colleges and a number of cities and foundations that have already divested. The announcement came within days of the arrest of students demanding divestment at Washington and Harvard universities. Stanford President John Hennessy called moving away from coal investments, quote, a small but constructive step and pledged to keep working to develop viable, sustainable energy solutions for the future. Well, divestment activists are thrilled. Stanford junior Michael Penuelas, a lead student organizer, explained how the breakthrough happened.
1: Stanford's board of trustees passed a vote uh, with a majority sufficient to divest Stanford from coal. So what that means is they're going to cease all direct investments in pretty much a list of about the 100 biggest coal companies. Um, they're not going to make any future investments in those either. What about mutual funds
0: that have coal, maybe just as a small
1: part? Yeah. So mutual funds and indices make up the majority of Stanford's endowment. Big endowments in general are going to be under various contractual obligations. Um, So they can't just go ahead and divest immediately is what it sounds like to us, but they're going to go ahead and pressure those as strongly as they can to go ahead and do what they can, those external asset managers to pull Stanford's money out.
0: To what extent were you inside the room during this assessment by Stanford on the question of divestment?
1: So our campaign submitted a formal request for review to an advisory panel composed of faculty, staff, uh, students, and alumni as well um, last spring. And then since then, we've met with various elements of that panel and other administrators about once every two weeks or once a week while they've been conducting an extensive research and deliberation process. About two weeks ago, they notified us that it had passed on to the Board of Trustees. There's a subcommittee there that then made a bigger recommendation to the board itself. What
0: was your dialogue like with the university through this process?
1: very amiable and very constructive. Um, We've actually been struck, particularly when you look at the actions that other administrations have taken. For example, in the last week or so, students have been arrested on the campuses of Harvard and Washington University for this same push. So, you know, in light of that, when you look at it from that kind of a juxtaposition, quite fantastic.
0: Now, your group, Fossil Free Stanford, was calling on the university to divest from all fossil fuels. How satisfied are you with this step?
1: We're pretty proud of Stanford. This marks the biggest endowment, you know, $18.7 billion that is now off the table when it comes to investments in coal. Um, We'll certainly keep pushing because tar sands is just about as dirty as coal when it comes to carbon, um, but also oil and natural gas, so all contributing enormously to climate change. And it's largely a similar group of companies that are controlling those reserves. And what Stanford made his decision on was the fact that the climate change caused by coal is causing substantial enough social injury was the wording that they used to warrant action on those investments. And in our opinion, all of the other drivers of climate change are also causing that same social injury. We're going to keep this dialogue going. We're going to keep working with this review panel, this advisory panel. And ultimately, we're going to really hope for divestment. And this is a promising sign.
0: Now, a cynic might say that Stanford's move was simply a smart financial move, given how coal stocks have fallen. The biggest company, Peabody Coal, was $75 just three years ago, $75 a share, and is now down in the teens.
1: I certainly think that that was a major factor in Stanford's decision. Fossil fuels, as carbon legislation rolls out across the globe and as people realize that there are feasible alternatives, are going to decrease in value. There's this concept of a carbon bubble that's being discussed widely in in financial circles right now. And so I think, frankly, that it makes good financial sense. And there have been some studies that have shown if universities had divested 10 years ago, they'd have significantly higher returns today. Um, it's just fact that these industries are on the way out. Coal, particularly in the US, but all of these fossil fuel industries. So, you know, I, I think that's a perfectly good reason if universities want to divest on financial grounds, then you know what, <laughs> that's good by me.
0: How much money do you think Stanford had uh, invested in coal? Uh when this ruling came down?
1: Stanford being a private institution, they don't have to disclose where their investments go for the most part, and they don't. But um, President John Hennessy did state that it's not a very big chunk, the direct investments that they're going to rid themselves of immediately. So it's it's not the biggest financial impact that it could have been, but it's certainly something, and, and more than anything, it's certainly a symbolic statement that Stanford on an institutional level is is done with coal. Coal, you know, it's the most carbon intensive fossil fuel. The largest fossil fuel reserves on Earth are coal reserves. And it's the fossil fuel with the most rapid increase in the rate of exploitation in countries around the world. So a move away from coal on the part of Stanford is a leading and a really major step in the move away from the fossil fuel industry.
0: What's the importance of this coal divestment by Stanford in terms of the national divestment movement, do you think?
1: The responses we've been getting, you know, on on Facebook and other forms of social media, as well as, you know, 100 emails that we've received so far from other student organizers have been ecstatic. This is one of the first really big wins. You know, this is 18.7 billion reasons why we need to keep moving and we need to keep pushing. So a lot of those campaigns are galvanized by this because of especially in the in light of again these arrests at Harvard and Washington University have been A really depressing and sad week for the movement because these universities chose, instead of opening dialogue with their students, to arrest them. So I think this comes at a really important time, and this is going to be a crucial action when we look back at this movement in the future.
0: Michael Penuelas is a junior at Stanford University and a lead student organizer for the Fossil Free Stanford Movement. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you.
0: Divestment isn't the only environmentally-based threat to fossil fuel companies. While many tout the natural gas fracking boom as a huge benefit, some residents abutting those gas wells say they're suffering from polluted water, toxic chemicals, and bad air. Many have sued. Suits have been dismissed or settled, but in late April, the Parr family in North Texas won a rare victory. They sued several companies over numerous health problems they blame on the foul air from a nearby gas well, All the companies settled, except for Aruba Petroleum. And when the case went to trial, the Parr family won nearly $3 million in damages. Hannah Wiseman teaches environmental and energy law at Florida State University and joins me now to discuss the issues. Welcome to Living on Earth.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, so far we haven't seen too many legal victories in cases involving fracking. How was the Parr family in Texas able to convince a jury to award them $3 million in damages?
5: The Parr family alleged a nuisance, which is an unreasonable interference with the enjoyment of their property. And they persuaded the jury that various health problems were caused by oil and gas activities occurring near their property.
0: What did they show in terms of the nuisance and their health problems?
5: Uh, the Parr family showed dizziness, nausea, possibly immune effects, uh, lymph nodes enlarged on the necks. They had reports from blood tests uh, suggesting changes to their health that occurred after oil and gas activity began. Also, damage to their livestock. And damage to livestock is another actionable claim with respect to a nuisance because that is another interference with their property.
0: I imagine that's big in Texas, too.
5: That's correct. Correct.
0: To what extent are nuisance claims being used by plaintiffs in other fracking cases around the country?
5: Nuisance claims are very common. They're one of the most common types of claims because these are common law claims, meaning they were developed by courts, and they exist... Above the public law of statutes, even if a defendant complied with all statutes and regulations, including environmental statutes and regulations, plaintiffs may still allege a nuisance.
0: Now, how unusual is it for a case like this to wind up at trial? One would think that the gas and oil companies would prefer to settle a case like this out of the public eye.
5: This is very unusual. Most cases have indeed settled or been dismissed. Uh, This is one of the first, if not the first, cases to go to trial on the issue of nuisance associated with oil and gas, uh, and particularly hydraulic fracturing.
0: What other jurisdictions uh, recognize uh, this nuisance concept?
5: All jurisdictions within the United States recognize some form of nuisance. This claim was originally developed in the English courts. There were very early cases finding that agricultural activities were a nuisance. The nuisance claim was then transferred to the United States and has since been recognized in U.S. courts. In some cases, legislatures have further defined or narrowed what a nuisance claim can be, uh, but this claim is alive and well throughout the United States.
0: I wonder how applicable this is to somebody living downwind from a, a hog farm, for example.
5: That was indeed the original nuisance case, Aldred's case in England, uh, was about a hog farm, and the neighbor of the hog farm successfully argued uh, that the odors from the farm were so strong as to make the neighbor's property uninhabitable.
0: How surprised were you that uh, this fracking, hydraulic fracturing uh, nuisance case, uh, happened in Texas?
5: It is somewhat of a surprise because... Texas is often viewed as a state that has had such a high level of oil and gas production for such a long time that the activity is accepted by the citizens of the state. There's this view that people in Texas don't tend to complain because they're happy with the profits that oil and gas drilling have brought into the state. But I think especially with the expansion of drilling due to uh, hydraulic fracturing of shales, think there's a concern that wells are increasingly close to people's houses. There are more than 1,700 gas wells in the city of Fort Worth alone, for example. And with the proximity of wells to farms and houses, there may be growing concerns about the environmental effects.
0: How vulnerable do you think this Texas case is to uh, appeal?
5: I think the case is somewhat vulnerable and appealed, and I think there could be a number of challenges with respect to whether the activity was, in fact, unreasonable, as well as whether the plaintiff's health problems were caused by the defendant. Uh, I think there could be an argument that there were other sources of pollution that also contributed to the alleged injuries. In terms of setting precedent, as well as setting an example that other states will follow, I would imagine that this case will not establish strong precedent uh, until it is assessed by an appellate court.
0: So it'll take a while. imagine it'll make its way to the Texas Supreme Court.
5: My best guess is that it would end up in the Texas Supreme Court because this could be a monumental case both for plaintiffs and the oil and gas industry. Uh, And I think strong arguments will be made by both sides on appeal.
0: Hannah Wiseman teaches environmental and energy law at Florida State University. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Professor. Thank you. Coming up, what one gardener did to cope with the climate gone crazy. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Despite the rapid growth of organic food production, pesticides are widely used on America's farms. And as pests become resistant, more pesticides are applied, which can mean more of these risky chemicals show up in the foods we buy. To help guide consumers, the Environmental Working Group is out with the latest version of its annual lists of fruits and vegetables with the least and most pesticide residues. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom has more.
6: It's 6 o'clock on a Tuesday, grocery store rush hour at my neighborhood market in Cambridge, Massachusetts. People pop in after work to get food for dinner. In the produce department, amid bins of broccoli, piles of oranges, and stacks of bananas, I ask shoppers to take a guess. Which item of produce has the most pesticide residue?
2: I think berries would be at the top of the list. They have such thin skins and they like absorb things like that really easily.
7: I would expect the softer greens. I would expect perhaps spinach. The softer the leaf, the more little pests want to eat it.
2: I would guess like one of the more colorful vegetables. I would guess like bell peppers or something like that. Because I feel like whenever I read stuff, it's like the stuff with the most color. It's the stuff that's being artificially kind of messed with.
1: I'd guess like maybe root vegetables like potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, stuff like that. I think I saw something once that said, like, apples are, like, really high as far as pesticides, but that's the only one I remember. He's right.
6: All of those foods are on the Dirty Dozen list. However, though an apple a day may keep the doctor away, it also comes spiked with a cocktail of five different types of chemical pesticides. Apples routinely top the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen list, but this year the researchers are particularly concerned about a chemical called diphenylamine, or DPA, Roughly 80% of American apples are sprayed with DPA after they've been picked to protect the skin of the fruit during shipping. Sonia Lunder is a senior analyst with the Environmental
2: Working Group. Europe actually took action in 2012 to ban this pesticide treatment because they couldn't guarantee the consumers in Europe that this DPA treatment didn't break down to form cancer-causing impurities or breakdown products when the apples were stored. Number two on the Dirty Dozen list, strawberries. Strawberries grow on the ground. They're very susceptible to pests and spoilage. They're also a high-value crop. And so they have an aggressive regimen of treating strawberries, um, including fumigating the soil to kill all living creatures in the soil before they plant the little strawberry starts.
6: And rounding out the top three produce items with the most pesticides, grapes. Leafy greens aren't off the hook, though. Kale and collard greens are frequently contaminated with insecticides known to be toxic to the human nervous system. But potatoes have the most pesticides by weight. Lunder says that doesn't mean people should stop eating fruits and vegetables. Instead, she advises them to choose organic when possible.
2: If you have limited money to buy organic foods, focus on those foods that are on the Dirty Dozen list. And when your organic dollars are tight, consider the Clean 15 as a group of foods that have very few pesticide residues on them.
6: Avocados have the least pesticides of any food tested, followed by sweet corn and pineapple. Researchers test the part of the produce people eat, and generally fruits and vegetables with a thick, non-edible outer skin have less detectable residue. Most of the shoppers in my grocery store were surprised when I told them about the high concentration of pesticides on apples, and they had mixed feelings about buying organic instead.
2: I'll be thinking about it, but I'll probably still buy the same food, to be honest. I'm poor, so organic's expensive.
1: (laughs) We typically eat organic, pesticides and other reasons, I mean, it just tastes better, it's just better for you. Yeah, I'm very definitely concerned about pesticides and try to avoid non-organic produce when I can. They actually get a farm share most of the year.
2: I'm kind of the type that's like, it's worrisome, but um, there's not much I can do about it.
1: I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, I like wash everything pretty thoroughly anyway, so.
2: This report, actually, the the way they did it, they
6: washed everything very thoroughly and then they tested it. So this is the pesticides that you can't wash off.
8: Well, that's upsetting.
6: (laughs) The pesticides USDA and FDA researchers found in this study can't be removed by washing the food. The shoppers I talked to were left wondering if eating pesticides on produce is safe. Sonia Lender from the Environmental Working Group says there's no ethical way scientists can test the safety of people consuming pesticides. But several studies have examined the health outcomes of children who live in farming communities and were exposed to pesticides.
2: These long-term studies of American kids found that kids with the higher levels of exposure to these pesticides had lower IQs, and they had signs that their brain and nervous system development had been altered or disrupted from the pesticides. And in the IQ studies, it's like a six-point IQ drop, which is equivalent to lead poisoning. Lender says the children in the farm study
6: were likely exposed to more pesticides than the residue found in the food we eat. However, young children and pregnant women are still most at risk for problems associated with pesticides. So she advises people buying for those groups to be extra choosy in the produce department of the grocery store. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
0: The White House has just released its third national climate assessment, showing that every region of the country is already affected. Higher temperatures, rising sea levels, more intense storms and wildfires, and huge swings in temperatures are a reality, and we no longer know what's normal. All this climate disruption affects just about every way we live, including how we garden. Author Jim Barilla recently wrote an essay in the New York Times called
9: Gardening for Climate Change, so we called him up to get some ideas. For me, climate change up until recently was something that seemed theoretical and kind of futuristic and really kind of disconnected from what I was doing on the ground locally in my own yard. But, you know, recently I've started to see tangible changes that make me question whether this is kind of the new normal. This winter, I think the the thing that got me really thinking about this was the experience of the of the polar vortex in which we had successive waves of very unusual cold uh, followed by sort of normal warmth. And observing the impact uh, that that had on plants and insects and other creatures that live in our yard was disconcerting and had me sort of out there uh, putting frost blankets over everything one week then pulling them off and watching things come into bloom only to watch uh, them freeze was a, a whipsaw of weather back and forth here.
0: So how do you think climate change is affecting your practice of gardening? What do you do different in the garden now?
9: Well, I think that's an open question, and I'm still trying to figure that out. What's intriguing to me is I think once you sort of recognize that climate change is going to have a tangible kind of effect on your practice in the yard, then you start to think about those pragmatic questions of, well, what am I going to plant? When am I going to plant? What can live here? One thing that was interesting to me, and and this somewhat by happenstance, but I had planted about 10 different cultivars of blueberries in our yard. Uh, These are adapted to different climate zones. So some of these have been developed to grow well. For example, in the mid-Atlantic states, others were developed to grow well in Florida. And really what that means is that they have different chilling requirements. They require a period of cold weather to kind of reset their internal clock and tell them when to bloom. Uh, The ones with very low chilling requirements will come into bloom relatively early. The ones with a higher chilling requirement will come into bloom later. What that meant this year was that the cultivars developed for Florida were coming into bloom in early January and just getting hammered by the freezing weather. The ones that were developed for a more northerly climate actually came through pretty well. So we now have fruit on the northerly varieties. The southern varieties don't have much this year. And I think that might be what I'm thinking in terms of is planting a much broader spectrum of species Uh, and really trying to encourage that kind of local diversity on a a, a kind of microcosm level, to think of the yard as a microcosm, but also as a connecting the small yard to the continental and indeed global uh, kind of questions of species diversity.
0: Now, in your essay, uh, your recent essay, you use the phrase extreme gardening. um, Yes. To describe what you're doing. What do you mean by that?
9: Well, you know, to me, what that means is Again, I'm planting a lot more species, a lot more different things, and also, I think, challenging the notion of what belongs where. Typically, if you're going to create wildlife habitat, one of the things you're encouraged to do is to add a lot more native species to the landscape, and that's certainly something that I've done here. But it also strikes me that if something as fundamental as the climate is changing, then that has deep implications for what we consider Native and non native, and what can live in various environments. And one way I think to avoid despairing about what's happening is to think, well, what can I do to help species survive? And so this plant may not be native here, but at the same time, it's not uh, invasive. Is it possible that I can uh, encourage it to live here? What could live on it? Are there communities of species that could inhabit this urban environment and make it a more diverse place? You know, bearing in mind that what we do in the city might not be what we'd want to do in. Yellowstone National Park. The, the city's already a highly mediated environment. The soils are different. The temperatures are already different. So we have a kind of place where we can experiment with what's going to work in the future. And to me, there are some exciting possibilities along those lines.
0: Jim, what do you think of the term invasive species?
9: What I would like to see us do is have a much more nuanced approach to how we Label species. Invasive is something that I think we could distinguish from non-native. So I think we can consider them on a species-by-species approach, um, and we can distinguish from something like the honeybee, which is a non-native species, very important ecologically uh, as well as agriculturally in our environment. If we use the term non-native, we can sort of think, well, it may be non-native, but it may actually be beneficial, or it may not be doing us any harm or doing the environment uh, any harm.
0: Now, John Holdren is the science advisor to President Obama, and he says that he prefers the term climate disruption to climate change or global warming. What do you think about that?
9: Well, it is a disruption to business as usual. This winter, I sort of found myself like the plants and and the bees and the other creatures in the yard. I was sort of thinking, this is clearly a disruption. This is clearly bewildering. What's been interesting to me in the aftermath is to see, well, you know, the impact, at least in the short term, plants have come back. It isn't apocalyptic yet. And I think there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that it doesn't become a sort of apocalyptic scenario and remains a disruption. So I think we need to figure out how we can embrace and guide that change that becomes as minor a disruption to life as we know it as possible.
0: Jim Barilla is a writer whose new book is called My Backyard Jungle, The Adventures of an Urban Wildlife Lover Who Turned His Yard Into Habitat and Learned to Live With It. Thanks
9: for joining us, Jim. Thanks. It's been great. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, as Jim Barilla suggests, some plants that might not be native to an area may still be useful additions, but others manage to become total pests. Think of kudzu and Japanese knotweed. Some invaders are less problematic, like bittersweet nightshade, a vine with pretty purple flowers and inedible red berries. Now scientists are trying to work out exactly how and why invaders like this find success, as Ari
3: Daniel reports from Cleveland, Ohio. Have you ever wondered what makes an invasive species set up shop somewhere it doesn't belong? In other words...
7: Why are some species able to invade and others are not?
3: Jean Burns is an ecologist at Case Western Reserve University, and her research is offering a clue to that riddle and also helping to determine which places are most vulnerable to species invasions. On a cold, rainy morning, Burns offered to tell me more at a farm that's become her outdoor laboratory just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. She spends a lot of time here, examining what seems like a simple question.
7: Where do organisms live and why this place and not that place?
3: And although the question is simple, the answer and the implications of that answer are anything but. Let's start with her organisms of choice, plants, and where they put down their roots the dirt she kneels down and rubs a moist handful between her fingers
7: so what we see as as humans it's brown it's muddy it looks to us like a nice tilled field that's pretty uniform but from the perspective of say a seedling that's germinating in a little patch of that soil what that seedling is experiencing is the bacteria and the fungi that are right next to it in the
3: soil. Those bacteria and fungi aren't spread out evenly. Drop one seed at your toes and toss another one a few feet away, and the seeds may find themselves in vastly different worlds of dirt. To a seed, that can mean the difference between germination and decomposition. That's because the bacteria and fungi interact with the plants, sometimes helping, sometimes hurting. And Burns wants to know how these tiny dynamics in the dirt add up to determine why invasive plants grow where they do.
7: Invasive species are species that have come from somewhere else, and they have become often really problematic in the places where they invade.
3: Burns has a pretty clever experiment underway to figure out what makes certain patches of soil vulnerable to plant invasion or not. To see the setup, we head indoors, inside her lab on the other side of the farm. Ecologist Angela Brandt dumps out a box of plastic party toothpicks onto a table. She's gluing a tiny seed to each one.
6: Yeah, it's, it's a good downtime, rainy day activity.
3: <laughs> so what kind of seed is that?
6: This is Solanum dulcamara, commonly known as bittersweet nightshade. It has very beautiful purple flowers and red berries, and it's not native to North America.
3: In fact, none of the seeds in this study are from here. They're all invasive. And by the end of the experiment, this team of ecologists will have glued over 100,000 seeds from these plants to individual party toothpicks. That's step one. Step two happens back outside on the farm. Nestled in the dirt are a series of large plastic pots, each one containing a spray of those plastic toothpicks sticking into the ground. Burns crouches down beside one of the pots with a healthy horse nettle plant.
7: Ah, this is an excellent example. Where you see this plant is right next to that toothpick because that seed was, was glued on there.
3: The horse nettle was planted first then burns added seeds of a different species. In this pot, that second species, the bittersweet nightshade, is just emerging from the soil. So the second plant, the nightshade, is invading the first one, the horse nettle. And if the flip is true too, if the first can invade the second, then it's a sign of coexistence. And this ties into the whole notion of invasive species, because when they first appear on the scene, there are, by definition, very few of them. They're arriving in a place where the odds are against them. But a successful invasive.
7: It's able to germinate and to grow and to persist. That's basically what invaders have to do when they're introduced to a native community that's already established, and they have to be able to. Overcome that competitive disadvantage.
3: Burns' research may help us get smarter about how to prevent or at least slow down species invasions. Down the line, she's hoping to ID the specific bacteria species that promote certain plants to establish themselves in the soil. But that's not all. Burns says her work can also inform how we restore places transformed by people. Take a nearby patch of land that's just been turned over to the Cleveland Metro Parks.
7: It's a golf course. It's been a golf course for 100 years. And what they would like to do is restore it into a native maple hardwood forest. And one of their questions then is how do they need to treat that soil in order to make their restoration plan really work?
3: It's the kind of riddle that Burns' research might just solve. By exploring how a bunch of invasive plants are duking it out, each with their own microscopic army in the dirt, she's coming to understand how to put back the plants that used to stand guard here in the first place. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel. Our story on invasive bittersweet is part
0: of the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media, with help from the Encyclopedia of Life. Coming up, we may be living in a time of widespread extinctions, but
4: that doesn't mean nature has stopped striving for more forms of life. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Many scientists believe that the Earth is
0: undergoing mass extinction number six, this time not due to a random meteor, but at the hands of humanity. So the other day, we reached out to Chris Thomas, an evolutionary biologist at York University in the UK, because we'd read that he sees some positive aspects in these grim circumstances. And Chris Thomas joins us now on the line from England. Welcome to Living on Earth. It's a pleasure to talk to you. What do you think of the idea that we're entering a major extinction period?
10: I think that's very likely. Um, We're seeing unprecedented extinction rates at the moment, and... The rates at which we're changing the planet's climate, altering the world's vegetation to produce our food, which obviously we need, polluting with nitrogen. So you see these effects all over the planet. And although they seem quite gradual in a way, if you sit back and think, well, humans have been around for a while, suppose they're around for another few hundred years to a few thousand years. Just the rates of change you see at the moment, enough to cause a fairly major extinction event.
0: But you put a silver lining
10: on this black cloud. Well, it's a slightly dulled silver lining in the sense that a lot of it's going to take place long after we are um, buried and forgotten, I suspect. But what I see is that as we change the environment right across the world, this produces new opportunities for some of the species that exist now and also provides new opportunities for new things to evolve that will be able to make use of the new environments that we're creating. And so just as we see a mass extinction that appears to be emerging because of us, because of our activities, similarly we may see a huge sort of origination, explosion if you like, of new ecosystems and new species that arise into the environments that we have changed.
0: To what extent uh, are we seeing this growth
10: of biological diversity right now? Surprisingly, uh, a, a huge amount. But generally, we almost don't see it as that. We think, well, it's changed from how it was in the past, therefore it's bad. And therefore, we see it almost as a loss, even when it's again in front of our eyes. So there are two kinds of process that are really giving rise to this. The first is what I call ecological diversification, And the second is the evolutionary diversification. All right, explain these to us. What do you mean by ecological diversification? So ecological diversification, so if you start off with an originally forested landscape and you turn half of it into pastures, then you provide new ecological opportunities for species that like open habitats to live in that area. So although the diversity of the forest doesn't go up, it probably goes down a bit, the total diversity of the region can actually increase because you've now got several types of habitat where you used to have just one. The other major effect that we're having is through introducing species to new parts of the world. In Britain, we've had between 1,500 and 2,000 species added to, particularly on the plant side, but the animals and plant diversity of Britain is now higher than it used to be. Now, the remarkable thing is that none of the native species have actually died out completely from Britain as a result of all of these new arrivals. So the whole diversity of the country is now much larger. a bit of immigration leads to some more diversity, huh? Yeah, but it's not all positive. So if you introduce mammalian predators, rats and cats and things like that, along with humans to oceanic islands where all the species there have never met a mammalian predator before in their evolutionary history. These predators arrive and the native birds and so on simply don't know what to do with them and they get driven extinct very fast. So it isn't a universal thing but on average when you add new species to a region you tend to have a net increase in number of species because you... For every new species that you add, less than one of the existing species dies out.
0: Let's talk about the evolutionary side of this. Uh, Talk to me about uh, some of the new species or some of
10: the broader biological diversity that we're seeing right now. Well, I can give you almost a little sort of mini-historical story where botanical collectors collected something which subsequently became known as Oxford ragwort. It was a plant, a yellow flowered plant related to the daisies and to ragwort itself, which grew on Mount Vesuvius in Italy. And they brought it back and they cultured it in the botanical garden. And it took a very long time to gradually spread through the city of Oxford. But eventually it did, and it, it likes growing in disturbed places, so cities are quite a good place for it. And eventually it got to the railway station. Once it got to the railway station, all hell let loose because the seeds are very light. They can be blown in the wind. And they got caught in the vortices behind the trains. And they were moved from station to station. And because it likes stony ground and disturbed places, all the railway stations it turned up at were themselves ideal locations for this plant to grow. So it just spread around the country. And it was living in a habitat where there were really no native species living there, so it was just adding to the country's biodiversity without causing any damage. But then what happened was that in a few places, it ended up hybridising with groundsel, which is a sort of distantly related species, but they could hybridise. And at least three of these hybrids ended up becoming sufficiently genetically distinct that you can now think of them as species in their own right. So we've now got four new ragwort groundsel species, and they've added to British diversity. And in fact, through these hybridizations, they've added to world diversity. You've talked about flora. What about fauna? What about animals
0: that are changing right in front of our eyes?
10: yeah so there's a couple of native plant feeding insects in north america which it turned out hybridized and their hybrids were able to live on introduced and so-called invasive european honeysuckles and so this species is now spread and so we've added one more species of uh, insect to the world and it's feeding on a plant that people thought was a bit troublesome uh, and so it's probably rather a good thing have you found any new insects that like kudzu you can pretty much guarantee that any plant that's causing a problem somewhere is going to have some native species within its historical range that are capable of feeding on it. And this, of course, is the basis for biological control programs. Of course, sometimes when we introduce plants, the insects arrive and then people don't like them. We've got a beautiful, um, something called the lily beetle, which I believe has colonized North America as well as Northern Europe, that feeds on garden lilies and to me as an insect ecologist it's absolutely beautiful insects a sort of orangey color but it does rather devastate your prize lilies and so uh, gardeners are very upset about this some species when they arrive if people sort of hate them others if they think they're biocontrol because it's reducing something that you don't like they're great things but they're just species And so I'm not really saying that any of this is good or bad. What I'm observing is that if we look across the planet, both through the ecological processes of insects following the plants that they eat on, hybridization, species just um, evolving when new opportunities arise that they can exploit, that what we're starting to see is this emergence of a new diversity, which is rather strongly associated with human activities.
0: So what's your take then on the whole concept of uh, invasive species and the fear that people tend to have around them? Uh, I'm wondering if you see this as perhaps uh, just the fear of change and a desire to just keep things exactly the way they are, when maybe in your view, nature doesn't work that way.
10: Well, in the long run, nature absolutely does not work in that way. I know most people think that 21,000 years ago is rather a long time ago, but in terms of the history of life on Earth, it's not even yesterday. If you can imagine yourself back to 21,000 years ago in the middle of the last ice age, almost none of the species that you would see where you are right now would be the same. The whole of the new vegetation where all the animals are now is new compared to what it was just 21,000 years ago. And so if you start thinking about invasive species, well, everything is an invasion on this timescale, Professor, what do you think of
0: what we're seeing around the world in terms of these dramatic and sometimes heroic efforts to save particular species of plants and animals? I'm thinking in particular of scientists in the Arctic who have been
10: done to advocate for human feeding of wild polar bears. What do you think of efforts like that? I think it's not, um, not a bad holding position, let's say. We are driving lots of species extinct, The difficulty is, though, that we tend to choose the most spectacular to take these actions for. So most of the species that are going to be going extinct are insects, plants that are very rare, many of which will just disappear and hardly anyone will notice. So I'm all in favour of trying to maintain wild populations of species, particularly if there's some hope that these species might be able to make a go of it again without having to take these interventions. So, if it's a holding operation for a hundred years or so, then fine. If it's absolutely indefinite, well, one's got to ask what should we prioritize in terms of saving. And for that, I would argue we should be thinking about, particularly, about things that are evolutionarily very, very distinct. So, something like the tuatara in New Zealand, which is a kind of reptile, it kind of looks like a regular big lizard. But actually, evolutionarily, it's almost as different as the lizards and the dinosaurs are from one another. This is a bit of our evolutionary history. And I would strongly advocate keeping those organisms alive and the genetic knowledge that is associated with them. So in the context of climate
0: disruption, people are, are pointing to a lot of plants and animals that are going to go away and kind of quickly. Should we uh, attempt to, you know, save as much as we can
10: or essentially roll with this? Environmental change is absolutely inevitable. It's been going on steadily for the last century. In fact, it's been going on for much longer than that. And I think that what we should be thinking about in, in an environmental context is how we live with that change rather than our starting point simply and always be to try and keep things exactly as they are or go back to some imagined past type of ecosystem. It isn't going to be done. We're going to lose if that is our approach. If we're trying to keep things the way they were, then, for example, as the climate changes, helping species to move to new areas where they may be able to thrive in future would be off the agenda because that would be making things less like the past. But it may still be saving species. And these more flexible approaches and maximizing opportunities as well as minimizing harms may be, I think, perhaps the way to go.
0: Some people listening to you might say that you're saying, hey, uh, everything is going to be okay. Uh, we can keep on going because nature is going to evolve and adapt and, win, and we shouldn't worry. To what extent are you concerned that people are going to take your message as license to just keep on polluting, just keep on consuming?
10: That's not what I feel. I think if we end up wiping out, say, a quarter of the species, maybe slightly more, I think from a, an individual personal perspective – that's a tragedy. I think from a a sort of utilitarian perspective, it's one hell of a waste of biological material that might have been of use to humanity at some point in the future. So I think it's kind of madness. I think it's a shame. What I'm really saying is that as we're living appears through a mass extinction caused by us, It's also extremely interesting to see just the beginnings of the shoots of recovery. It's not necessarily all rosy whatsoever, but it is a very interesting evolutionary and ecological phenomenon that as we modify and transform the planet in an enormous number of ways, that biological diversity is ready to give a go of seeing what it can do with these new conditions.
0: Chris Thomas is a professor of conservation biology at the University of York in the U.K. Thanks so much, Professor, for joining us. You're very welcome. Finally today, our weekly walk beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. As well as talking to us, he publishes DailyClimate.org and EnvironmentalHealthNews, that's EHN.org. He's on the line from Conyers, Georgia now.
8: Hi, Peter, what's up? Hi, Steve. Uh, Here's a pretty cool story that's been playing out for several years. Uh, Back in 2011, one of our reporters at Environmental Health News, Brett Israel, filed a story on brominated vegetable oil, or uh, BVO.
0: And what does brominated vegetable oil, or BVO, do?
8: Well, it depends where you live. Here in the United States, BVO is an additive in some fruit-flavored soft drinks, but in Europe and Japan, you're not allowed to use it in food, but you can use it as a flame-retardant chemical additive.
0: So, get out. You're saying it's food stuff here and a fire stopper elsewhere?
8: Yeah, and here as of back then, 2011, it was in Gatorade, Powerade, Mountain Dew, and a whole lot of citrus-based drinks as an emulsifier that sort of holds the flavorings together so you don't have water at the top of the bottle and flavoring at the bottom. Uh, When Bread Israel did this story for us, uh, it struck a nerve with a 15-year-old high school student in Mississippi named Sarah Kavanaugh. She read the story. She started a petition on the Change.org website focused on Pepsi-Cola, the owners of Gatorade. 200,000 signatures later, Pepsi announced it would remove brominated vegetable oil from all of its Gatorade products. Sarah turned her sights on Coca-Cola. Coke owns the Powerade brand, and this week Coke confirmed it's quitting BVO as well.
0: Well, it sounds like a big victory for consumer concerns, but what do we really know about brominated vegetable oil?
8: Well, the companies like Coke and Pepsi say it's safe, even though they've just gotten rid of it due to consumer concerns. The FDA has given it conditional approval for use in food. In fact, they gave it conditional approval 30 years ago, and that's where it stayed, sort of in a a food limbo. Some studies have shown health risks with fairly large levels of consumption, but BVO is patented as a flame retardant.
0: Maybe that's why football coaches don't burst into flames when they get the bucket of sports drink dunked on them at the end of a winning game. Next story, Peter.
8: Uh, Okay. There are pipeline projects crossing Canada that are just as contentious as the Keystone XL pipeline it is here in the U.S. And last week, a prospective pipeline builder, Kinder Morgan, got a little too enthusiastic about the value of pipelines. A little over the top. How? They submitted a report to the Canadian federal government on a pipeline it hopes to expand to carry the tar sands in Alberta to Canada's west coast. And one of the economic benefits, they say comes from pipelines is how much money people might make cleaning up tar sands oil spills. They said that spills create business and they create employment opportunities.
0: Isn't that a little like saying cigarettes and car wrecks are good business for the funeral industry?
8: Uh, Yeah, people in the vicinity of an oil spill are always really thankful for it.
0: I'm sure they are. Hey, Peter, what's on the calendar this
8: week? Seven years ago this week, one of the world's greatest news and media empires threw down the gauntlet on climate change. The media mogul in charge brought in all of the executives and told them, and this is his quote, climate change poses clear catastrophic threats. We may not agree on the extent, but we certainly can't afford the risk of inaction.
0: Okay, Peter, what's the name of this tree-hugging media tycoon? Sir Rupert Murdoch. Oh, come on, really? You're telling me that the guy who owns Fox News and the Wall Street Journal thinks climate change is a big deal?
8: Yeah, and he committed their parent company, news corporation to dramatically reduce their carbon footprint. It made a fair amount of news at the time, although I don't think it made Fox News or The Wall Street Journal uh, or The Simpsons, which he also owns.
0: So doing something about climate change while your global news empire says it doesn't exist. Is that what they mean by fair and balanced?
8: Well, you got to watch yourself using that fair and balanced talk. I remind you that those words are registered as a trademark by Sir Rupert's company.
0: Well, you can find these and other links to our stories at loe.org.
8: But you won't find it on the News Corp site. It was taken off a couple of years ago.
0: Peter Dykstra is the publisher of Environmental Health News at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org.
8: Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon.
0: is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Clarissa Baker, Bobby Baskin, Emma Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catalina Pierce-Schmidt, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison lerish composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from
4: at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms www.redtomato.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
3: PRI, Public Radio International.